out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Well done, Jim. Thank you for that. Hello and welcome. This is David Eastall. This is the C86 Show. Once again, delving deep into the archives and uh, deciding that I should um, try to file all these interviews that I have done over the last couple of years in a nice and orderly way. This is one that I did with the bass player of Cud, the one and only William Potter, not Porter, as I said, in my dreams, or something like that. Anyway, so this is the interview. This is... um, Unedited. It's just one seamless, long interview. Um, And this is the first part, and only part, because this is it, uh, where we were talking about the 30-year narrative for some reason. It was fascinating. William, take it away. Uh, It's funny you mentioned 30 years, because yesterday was the 30th anniversary of Deadline magazine, if you're aware of that. Um, That's the comic that launched Tank Girl. So uh, for most of the contributors like myself... Uh, to the magazine. Uh, It was like uh, a great reason to think back to that period, but also a shocker thinking it was 30 years ago. Yes, I know. Well, well, I kind of, I suppose a few years ago, I started counting decades with my fingers because I'd often go, oh, that was, was that one decade or two decades? And then I had to do the finger thing and go, oh shit, it's three decades. It's 30 years, isn't it? Fuck. (laughs) This is not, this is a bit weird because, you know, I look at the 90s, you know, it's like, was that 10 years ago? It's like, no, oh no, no, it's actually 20, two decades, you know, and the 80s were the same. And 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 a funny thing with the 30 years, because I hadn't realised this, but suddenly everybody has suddenly bringing out books on fanzines, you know, really academic books you know written by professors on the fanzine culture of not just the punk period but the indie period and again I think people had probably been throwing these out happily you know recycling them putting them in the cat litter and then suddenly it's like no no stop doing that it's now become an incredibly interesting social cultural artifact we must put them in museums and I must go and discuss them in lectures now with my students it's like oh right 30 years well, actually, uh, that was my thesis, uh, fine art, when I did fine art, um, probably about 30 years ago. Uh, my thesis was, on, thesis was on the history of fanzines since Sniffing Glue. Right. So, uh, I, I, I mean, because I was doing a fanzine at the time called Groin with uh, Carl out of Cud. Um, he did a supplement to it called Beyond Hair. And I thought it was, um, you know, a, a cheap and easy subject to, to do because I'd gathered quite a lot of fanzines. I knew a lot of the editors. And I, th- and I thought I could just take a trip to the Collindale newspaper library and, and read the reviews and um, write about the, about the period. Uh, and I, I published it as a fanzine um, and delivered it to the, um, the heads of the department who, who looked at it like my art and said, like, uh, we don't know what this is about. We don't know this subject at all. And we're not sure about this presentation. Um, here's a pass because we, we can't uh, register it critically so right. <laughs> well now i mean if you still got a copy you know people will sort of you know literally you know fight you for it and break your front door down because i think it's kind of, yeah because this guy who actually lives in norwich i think he's a, i don't know where he's a professor but he's just bought out a book which is kind of on the fanzine culture and then another guy i don't know his surname but tony somebody's just also this this month has just brought out a book on fanzines and it and it goes through all the very obscurest fanzines in the world so um but you were based in leeds weren't you yes because yes. my partner lived in leeds 
around that late 80s period and hung out with the Chumbawamba bunch mm-hmm. and did a fanzine called Peace of Mind. That was it. And um, yes, and she suddenly was like, she's put it in a box and tried to pretend she never wrote angsty poetry and sort of went on too many political marches. But I, I kind of get the sense in the last couple of years that she's slightly tempted to have a look again. But I think, again, the 30-year thing, going back to that, is like, you know, also that slight embarrassment of what you might have been like in your teens you know mm-hmm. with, with dodgy haircuts you know going to the is it army and navy stores getting the big boots the yeah. clothes slight mohique and a few dreadlocks and liking chumbawamba and everybody else from that you know and crass obviously um and being in a squad so there you go well all, all of this um seems is interesting at the time to look back on um because um yeah, it's pre-internet, so you had uh, it's the only way to get messages messages about bands that the newspapers weren't reviewing because uh, you couldn't view their videos uh, online, you couldn't hear their music unless you paid to go to a gig. Uh, so it was a way to to get their messages out. So I think fanzines, in a way, have like died and been replaced by blogs. Um, but uh, fascinating records of the period. Uh, when it was the only way of getting word out. Yes, and the flexi disc with it. It's even more exciting. Well, I've done an interview with Claire from Sarah Records and she started her life as a fanzine writer, I think in Leeds, actually. And then she met Matt, who was also a fanzine writer in Bristol. And, and obviously, they I don't know if they got together, but they created Sarah Records, which um, we all grew to love. Anyway, there you go. And now they do documentaries on Sarah Records. And at the time, they were, they were stoned in the street, weren't they, by the NME. But um, yes... They love it now, don't they? Anyway, look, sorry, I'm babbling on here. But, yeah, so, look, so I do this show, and it would be great to get um, an idea, because interestingly enough, um, I put indie pop down at sort of 83 to 87, which is roughly the years of the Smiths, but um, obviously there was, you know, before and after, and you came along very much at that, towards the latter half of the 80s, but but had obviously been in, into music and public culture during the mid-80s as well. So what was the sort of general background of, of the band forming? Uh, it's funny you mention uh, 87 as like the end of your indie pop period, because that's basically when we started. Uh, it was the end of our uh, course. Um, I think most of us uh, joined art courses um, for lack of uh, uh, knowledge of what exactly to do with uh, with our creative uh, urges. Um, for me and others, we joined the fine art course um, to dabble and also join a band because that was what a lot of people did. Um, so while I was personally painting kind of uh, fanzine-y, um, pop-orientated art, I was looking for other people to form a band, even though I had uh, very little musical ability. Um, so it was, you know, there were parties. We played we, we played with mates and made up tunes, um, just did the odd parties, odd little support slots in uh, gigs uh, um it, it was yeah we, we we got access to a porter studio as part of the course so we're just making it up as we went along and uh one of our tapes got into the hands of um uh, the wedding present who were uh you know they'd, they'd been going for about a year and were quite established in leeds at the time and uh i just bumped into one of them and they offered us a record deal there and then so you know, for being these art students dabbling with a few tunes, we had about five songs. Mm. Um, suddenly we had uh, a chance to uh, make a record. So we hurried into a studio, spent 50 quid on four songs. Um, and then we sent that uh, cassette off to John Peel and got a Peel session within a week. So it was, 
there must have been something about our tunes that was inspired. Um, we we weren't very proficient musicians, but we we had some great ideas, I think, and and we we could make up some hooks and had some attitudes. So uh, we had a real amazing break at the um, end of our um, three year courses. Yes, and well, it was. Yeah. And so yeah. we did, then we decided, like, uh, yeah, maybe we, we should stick at this rather than looking for proper jobs. <laughs> well, it's quite incredible because that's the one thing that I've, I've often been boggled by, and especially now in today's environment. But but putting that to one side, it, you know, in the early days, you know, like getting creating a you know a group and making a sound is one thing, and then playing in front of your mates. But it's how do you and anybody else you can emotionally blackmail to come to your gig. But then after that, it's like, how do you play outside of that environment? And and back in those days, John Peel was this kind of amazing gatekeeper that I hadn't appreciated until I was doing all these interviews, that a John Peel play and then a potential John Peel session would be the next step out of just playing in the in the local club, pub, that that you were sort of, I suppose, play, you know, where you lived, basically. So, so that was kind of a, an essential thing, and that would often then... Sort Sort of step onto the first album so at least you know that the pill show and session was just I didn't really I didn't had not appreciated how just incredibly important this was because otherwise you're just kind of playing in front of a few people that you know and then one day you just all pack up whereas actually the industry kind of d- did help itself with by by this access of um, national broadcasting. Yes absolutely without Peel we would have probably had to give up. Um, Peel and the Wedding Present basically gave us our break. Uh, the Wedding Present gave us an opportunity to support them uh, in our first gig in London, and I think it was uh, Exeter of all places. Um, but because of Peel playing our session and our, and later our records, um, we, we uh, the, 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 the people going to our gig, the geese gigs, knew one or two of our songs, and uh, then eventually we could start to book our own um, shows Yes. Uh, or quite minor, my small venues. Um, but yeah, it, it built up, and we got more peel sessions, and we got the opportunity to make more records. And uh, yeah, and then, then it was a kind of flatlined for quite a while. Um, but uh, we kept on going. Yeah, because it's the other thing that people really loved about doing a John Peel session, especially if that was in their early days and they hadn't done much recording was the quality that they would get from one of these kind of um, afternoons or days with, with John Peel and probably the famous Dale Griffith, who was the producer in mo- most of those kind of uh, sessions. I don't know which one you had. But this one was particularly, this was kind of the summer of 87. By the way, 87, I, I put down as the best year of music ever um, for many reasons. But you just have to look at the, the amount of records released that year and think, oh, yeah, that was quite good. So did, did that Peel session make make your early your first single sound a bit tinny uh well it's a bit weird with us and um, we did get dale griffin and he made us uh sound what i described like a snowplow it was just like the most amazing noise i'd ever heard and uh it, it didn't sound like our rehearsals um so we were absolutely amazed um at the kind of loudness of it uh prior to that we just worked on a little porter studio and we'd done this 50 quid demo and, and those those stand up. They're quite, you know, they're, they're cheap and uh, raucous and they're fine. Um, but then we made the mistake of thinking, well, we've got this Peel session money, which was about 300 quid. And we spent it all in a 24-track studio in Leeds um, with a guy who turned out to be the owner rather than an engineer. And he made, uh, we made a record uh, that was, uh, we, that lacked any, um, 
experience. Uh, we didn't. Uh, it, we were really unsatisfied with it in the end, but we'd spent the money and felt we had to release it. Uh, so we have, we've. It's it's a record that we've ignored in later compilations, uh, and then say don't listen to that. Listen to the Peel session version. It's much better. Uh, which which is always the case. We eventually got better um, better at recording. We found better people to work with, but uh, we yeah we we just wasted our money on a on an expensive studio for the, for our first single. It would have been better just a little um, just releasing the demo to be honest. Yes, well at least you didn't blow it on drugs anyway, so that was a good thing. The one thing that also the other time that I came across you and I realised you were one of those bands who loved a good cover version because there was the one you did with Peel, you did You Sexy Thing, but then there was a compilation a few years later for the Anti-Poll Tax League, um, Elvin Lives in Leeds, which we all bought and played constantly for various reasons and you did a, a version of bohemian rhapsody which was probably quite ambitious at the time uh it's ambitious but accidental I, I don't think we particularly wanted to do cover versions it, it just came about um you sexy thing came about because we were just locking around at a party and we just kind of worked it out and uh, sped it up and it was um, just a laugh so when we came to get in the peel session uh we didn't have many songs and we thought it'd be quite funny to do a cover um, so we did that and, and frankly that's what um, got people's attention and we ended up lumbered with it for quite a while um, but we then we did every peel session we did after that we we dropped in a cover that we've been working on um, but I think a lot of the reason we did covers is because we ended up signing a deal with imaginary records who used to do these tribute albums um, tributes to the kinks which we did Lola for, a tribute to the Bonzo Dog Doodah band, which we did Urban Spaceman for. Um, so we ended up accumulating quite a few covers, which we drop into the set, but never put on our own official records. Um, but uh, uh, in, in terms of Bohemian Rhapsody, my only recollection of that is we went back to this cheap 50 quid studio and we were told we were doing a song for it. And, and it seemed like the decision had been made for us that we were doing Bohemian Rhapsody. And we were in the studio. We'd never played it before. We never worked it out. So we just listened to it, um, found it too long, um, stole um, the uh, solo part for the guitar and made that the riff going all the way through and then chopped out every other line um, to make it a bit shorter. Um, and it was just it was just knocked up in uh, one afternoon in, this, um, in line studios in Leeds. Not very serious. Um, and we never played it live, um, uh, but yeah, I think we um, we went a bit too far um, doing cover versions, which were done without any um, seriousness. It was just a, a lark, and so it added to this idea that maybe Cud weren't a serious band after all. Yeah, well, it's, it's a tricky one because one of my favourite bands that John Peel introduced me to was Liebark, and they were always very good with their covers. And some of them were quite bizarre, like Jesus Christ Superstar. And I think they're just going to release this autumn, um, The Sound of Music. But they take it very seriously, but they put the Liebark quality to it. So, why did you, by the way, just sign to the record label that you did? Because obviously at the time there was all these other ones that were probably going bust at around 87, actually, come to think of it. But, but, um, but I haven't come across many people who signed for this particular label. Uh, we made we they went bust eventually <laughs> after our, after our second album. But um, I think it was it was a period where um, we we did a, a, a record uh, on the um, wedding presents label reception, and then I think that kind of folded, and then so we got taken on by Red Rhino, who owned 
who were like the umbrella company for all those. And uh, and then we did, and then we went to an, a Scottish label, who then kind of ran out of money. And then Imaginary, who having done some um, cover versions for them, expressed an interest and funded our first album. So it, it, it wasn't like we had loads of um, labels knocking on the door or any money to record our own records. So when Imaginary said, uh, we'll pay for this, um, we said, yes, please. And, and we stuck with them and they were very, they were very good, a small, um, a very small company. Uh, uh, but they, you know, they were very supportive. They didn't interfere with our recordings or plans. Um, and we did, we did very well with them. Um, but then there came the point, um, like with lots of bands from, from, from our era that, uh, you know, if we wanted to go any further, we needed to sign to a major label. Um, and imaginary, I think, um, you know, I kind of ran out of money at that point. So. Yes. Well, we, I, from talking to various people who ran record labels during that period, it, there was never a lot of business kind of, um, I don't know, long-term planning. I think most people just kind of were also fed up because there was much more work than they expected and still they weren't making any money. And yes, things things probably all went a bit sour. And also I think with a, with a small label, often, you know, the owner would get to know the band and they'd become friends, which obviously is never going to work out in a long-term relationship, is it really? Well, Alan Duffy ran it. We, I can't say we became friends. He was like a, an obliging uncle um, and, and, and quite shy. And we've lost touch with him now. But, uh, you know, he was incredibly supportive. Um, yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, eventually it became a, a kind of money thing. It's, but, you know, it was never a cool label um, like creation or anything like that. But um, it was it was nice. Well, I know there was kind of Ron Johnson, Pink and Intape, but they they probably had the lifespan of most bands, which is about five years. Because the interesting thing is, having spoke to bands who came around that period that you did, because the indie scene had sort of was starting to putter out and all those early bands like the Wolfhounds and Yeah, Yeah, No... Obviously, the Smiths had had sort of had their moment in about 87, 88 and were finishing. And one of the reasons, apart from the fact that they'd all fallen out with each other, not all of them, but, you know, stuff happens, um, was that the, the sort of the industry was moving into the next wave, which is kind of the, the dance scene. And then you had the grunge scene coming from Seattle. And so, you know, a lot of those bands who started to form, and there was even like bands like Lush and the Sundays and you, you came sort of coming along that you didn't really weren't being able to be pigeonholed because I realise that people like to put, you know, like Britpop, go, oh, yes, that's great. You can all be Britpop now and you can be part of the Manchester dance scene. So so did you feel a little bit like, God, where the hell do we fit in with this? Uh, we didn't worry about being um, included with any scenes. Um, so we, we we didn't feel like we, we belonged to any scenes. Um, but what we, we did miss is, um, you know, the increased profile of being featured as part of a, a next wave so uh you know when when um the Manchester thing started kicked off uh it it was great for us in that um we, we were a good live band and a lot more people were going to see bands and at the time we were dabbling with a uh, you know um you know bongos and a kind of more uh, dancey thing and we did a really uh, weird thing in like the it was the end of 89 uh, we'd recorded in the studio and we'd used all these samples and stuff and done a long version of Robinson Crusoe and this is before Loaded um, by Primal Scream. But instead of taking that tape out and and uh, and selling it and saying this is uh, you know what we're planning, we we buggered off to Europe to do a, a tour of Eastern Europe and disappeared for ages. And when we came back, things like Hallelujah was out and uh, Loaded was out, and I thought, oh, we uh, <laughs> we missed our chance here. Mm. Um, 
but the fact we weren't really we weren't from Manchester we you know, we didn't dress a certain way um, because we had also had this kind of indie background as well uh, more jangly than uh, than dancey uh, we we couldn't really really be um, pigeonholed with that scene but we we definitely benefited from the um, interest in going to live gigs uh, and we we were quite and we still are kind of funky for a for a guitar based band so. Yes. And then later, then later, Britpop came. Well, grunge we were never part of, of course. But um, some, some journalists tried to um, describe us as a, a fight back against this American wave with a, a tag called Lion Pop, and they were lumping us with pulp and denim um, and Saint Etienne, um, thinking we're we're very British in our sound and we're going to fight them on the beaches and stop the American wave coming through. Uh, it didn't happen, and Lion Pop never really took off. But then Britpop did. And, uh, you know, we'd been around too long to, to be um, fresh and, uh, and to be part of that. So, uh, yeah, we never, we never kind of fit with any of the scenes. So we get a bit overlooked, but um, yes. we feel a little bit unique as a result. Well, it's interesting, though, because bands like uh, Pulp, obviously they'd been around knocking about and it was only kind of via people like John Peel sort of playing them and keeping Jarvis and the, the dream of pop stardom alive that they kept going. And then you got a band like Chumbawamba who, you know, you would know because from Leeds that they, they, they'd been knocking around and had their ever, you know, dwindling audience was getting smaller and smaller until they did their big single, didn't they? I get knocked down. So so obviously, you, you know, you were about and... and um, and people, you know, as long as you, I don't know, vaguely fit into something, you know, people like to push you into the general scene. Because cause we, what I've noticed, most bands have a five-year narrative of, you know, making a single, John Peel playing it, doing the session, doing the album. And then when the second album came along, that's often when things go a bit difficult. And if anybody ever does America, that seems to finish most bands off. But, but you did seem to... Yeah, you know, you, you did sort of push beyond the five years and the two albums, didn't you? Uh, yeah, we did like the two indie albums, and our second indie album, I think, was uh, one of our best. Really, it, uh, we we were much better at playing. Uh, Mike was writing great songs, and uh, they, they were very kind of catchy and well produced. Um, so it's an album we're very proud of. And then we moved on to a rec- major label, uh, and we started to have hits. We had more money behind us, and we did proper big tours. Um, but there was something lost then. Um, I think this, this is, again, a common thing with bands in terms of how long they can last. There comes a point, especially if they're not making a huge amount of money, is when the record company starts to take an interest in pushing you in a direction. And um, whereas on an indie label, we were kind of free to be ourselves. On a major label, they had the financial power to say, no, go back. That's not what we're looking for. We can't sell that in the States. Um, and clearly they didn't understand what our core audience was or what we were like and tried to mold us in a different direction and, uh, and didn't release a lot of our stuff. Um, for, you know, if we, we recorded an album. We had to wait about a year for it to be released. Um, and while that was happening, Britpop took off and, uh, you know, we'd been forgotten. Uh, so it got, you know, it got to a point where, you know, finances and record company pressures were too much and we said, you know, We've had this, this band's had its day. Let's uh, let's move on. Yes, because was that your was that Showbiz was was that the album or was it the one before that? Showbiz was the last album we did. That was uh, we we were ha- happy with that. We we'd been given a, a, a great kind of like a great producer who could make us sound uh, maybe you know transatlantic maybe, and he'd worked with Frank Black. 
Uh, and uh, it was a very polished sounding album. And we thought, OK, the record company should be happy with this. We still sound like Cud, but maybe with an international edge. And they never even released it in the States. It was just like, oh, what's the point? Um, so, uh, and, and it's, it's, it's a strange thing that, you know, it's, it's an album that's not even popular with our fans. Even though there, there were some hits and uh, I think there's some great songs on that, we barely play any tracks from that album uh, live now. Yes. Uh, so it's, uh, it's, it's overlooked. And, um, and one of the benefits of coming back as we are now is that, um, we can just be ourselves. There's no pressure from record companies. Um, it's it's done almost like a hobby um, for us and our fans. And we can play whatever we like. We can write tunes uh, that, that we like. We're not trying to please anyone in particular except ourselves. And if anything, we sound more like the cud we you know we were before we. Um, were manipulated in any way by a major record label. Yes, well, it's, inter- it's interesting because there was the Railway Children who I interviewed, the main man, and also Lou from the Red Guitars. When they, I think they were both went both went on to uh, Virgin Records, and that was kind of the death of the band because I think everyone, or most of the bands, most of the members of the band, all felt like actually they just kind of they want us to do this. They want us, to, you know, I think with the railway children, somebody wanted them to support take that in, you know, the early years of take that. And they thought, actually, we don't really want to be part of take that and that yeah. world, you know, we, we're an indie band and we want to be an indie band or at least a pop rock band, not, not some sort of part of the boys scene. So, and I think Lou from the red guitars was also feeling, they felt like actually this production, this producer, this kind of whole industry just isn't much fun anymore and, and everyone's heart just kind of left and, and so did the band. So it is a tricky one because I suppose you, you kind of feel like you want to make progress but at the same time that comes at kind of quite a big artistic loss, at the, you know, unless you're really determined but then I don't know if even then you'd be able to get your way. Well, I, I, we got similar to the Red, uh, Railway Children. We got um, put on a tour with the Spin Doctors, uh, which we really didn't fit in. We were playing places like um, the Hammersmith Apollo, great big venues, but all seated. And we'd come on to these uh, fans of uh, Two Princes, as it was, uh, and uh, into American rock, a kind of soft version of grunge. And they just didn't get us at all. We were, we'd done it like as a favour. Uh, the record company saying you need to expand your audience. Um, and, uh, but we didn't make any new fans as a result of that. In fact, we, if we felt anything, it's felt, we felt a bit lost. It's like, what are we doing here? We don't belong here. Um, we go to meetings with the record company and they say things like, uh, um, country, country music. That's the future. That's what people are to. I said, this guy, does he even know anything? Listen to our stuff? Does he, he doesn't get us at all. Um, so, you know, I, I you know, for, for in our case, we were a bit lost because um, the people that signed us um, moved off from the record company very quickly, and so we, we we lost a bit of support, and we ended up with these um, you know guys at heads of ANR who just had no idea about contemporary music and no idea about um, CUD. So um, you know, we were you know we just we just looked forward to the tours when we could connect with our fans again. Yes, because actually I think this is where I found, or nearly where I found um, my life story, because they were supporting CUD once, weren't they? Mm, that was, um, yeah. Uh, I don't think they would support tour, uh, CUD again. Um, we, uh, 
yeah, it was actually my pick. Uh, I, I liked what I heard with my life story. Uh, uh, even though I was aware that it would be uh, a hassle having a band of that size with all the cellos on stage. Um, but, you know, I enjoyed them. Um, but uh, they uh, fell foul of uh, um, roadies having a bit of um, a, a prank on uh, one of the gigs. Um, you know, it's, it's it, the, the road crew would um, take the piss out of us all the time. But... Uh, Having watched Jake um, do his big um, prima donna performance on the start of the, each show, where he comes on stage after a big kind of build-up, raises his microphone in the air and swings it about, um, our road crew uh, gaffer taped his microphone to the, to the stage, and most of his um, uh, string quartet uh, war- uh, had, had bare feet, so they sprinkled Rice Krispies all over the stage, and and I can't remember what other things they did. They had um, fireworks going off, all kinds of things as um, during their show. And uh, when uh, Jake came out um, to lift up his microphone and it wouldn't lift up, he tried for a while, then gave up and uh, off and stormed off stage in a half. And uh, the rest of the band carried on playing, finished the song, and then stared at each other and then thought, "What are we going to do? He's not coming back." So we we. <laughs> We we fell out with Jake. Uh, he just didn't have a sense of humour. But we, we we were careful. We didn't do this prank at the last gig of the tour because that was London and we knew it was important to them as well. We did it in Bristol or somewhere where, you know, just, you know, just, it was just part of a laugh of, on the tour. But, oh, well, uh, good luck to Jake. I know they're still going. Uh, I know they're playing Shine On um, in uh, November and we are. Um, different day, so we won't bump into him. But... Uh, <laughs> But, yeah, that's a bit of a no, classic. I just, I just, I just I relive that moment. Um, you know, that, that that tour was a great was great fun, and we got on well with the rest of the band, just not the singer. Yes, well, I, yes, I know. Well, Jake, you know, I mean, he really did sort of think they were going to be the the, the Beatles meets. I don't know. I think they, you know, take that. I think they were looking for stadium success, but it never came, and they never quite did it. And eventually, they released an album, which was a bit sort of. They kind of decided to do a bit of a Brit pop kind of rock album, which was like the death of the band, really. But the, but bizarrely, you know, he is back and he's got a crowdfunded album and um, he's going to be releasing that next year. So obviously, you know, he can't keep away from the stage. So, but yes, after that, I, I saw them quite a few times and was quite enamoured with their stage performance. But luckily, the mic was able to be removed from the stage, so uh, lifted. That was a classic, classic story, though. They must have had so many issues because having a band, I didn't. The other thing that I, you know, appreciate now or didn't appreciate before was just the more members of the band, the more technical and the, and then the more dynamic. Whereas actually, I can see why, I can see why Billy Bragg probably lasted so long because you think brilliant idea, solo artist, don't have a band. Uh, yeah, I mean, there's all the uh, issues with uh, transport as well. You know, if you can just rack up on a train with an acoustic guitar or uh, and just plug in, it's, uh, it's, that's great. But, um, you know, we, 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 we're at the stage um, where uh, our fans think, you know, that um, we can play their weddings and um, the bar mitzvahs and get in touch. How much would it be for Cud uh, to play my event? And I say, well... Frank, uh, it, more than you can afford because we have to pay for the rehearsal studios and my trains up north and and then the van hire and all the equipment and PAs and everything like that. And, and once they realise how much is involved to get a four-piece band over there and plus crew, it's like, think, mm, yeah, maybe I'll just get my brother-in-law to um, uh, to DJ. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so by the mid... 90s the John Major years did you um, did you have a moment where you you sat down and all said 
actually, shall we just call it a day now? Um, it, it was getting to that. We, we, we'd spent about a year um, de- demoing songs. Mike was writing tons of songs. Uh, um, and I think he was trying to compromise because you know, we're all frustrated um, in that the, you know, the record company wouldn't pay for us to go and record an album because they didn't see, uh, didn't like enough songs to merit an album. And without an album and the, the funding, we weren't able to go on tour. So we were just turning up uh, in a rehearsal studio, going through all these songs, um, which, you know, we, we started to fall out with them. We were, you know, the money that was meant to last us a year was being stretched out from a year and a half to two years. Um, so it was, it was a really difficult time and down, and we were feeling downhearted. Uh, and then it came to a crisis meeting and, um, uh, you know, how are we going to, you know, pull away and get through this and, and, and I, I decided to jump ship first. I, I, you know, I came to this meeting and say, you know, uh, I'm going to leave. And I had plans to go to London and I, I wanted to become a, a comic artist at the time. And uh, and I did that and I left them to it and, and I wished them well and we stayed in touch. And But they never did another gig and never made another record. They, they just struggled on for another a year or something um, and then ended up having, having to pay off tax bills and sell equipment to to pay it off and find other things to do so i'm glad i got out out and i missed that period because you know they ended up falling out for a while and didn't some of them didn't speak to each other for many years oh my God. Uh, and uh but for me I, I was still friends with them and i was still seeing them individually which is why um in uh 2006 when uh, a, um, a compilation album was talked about and some press that I was able to sit at a table with most of them and we were able to even consider playing again. Albeit we didn't form the, we didn't get back together in the original four piece. We got together as three of the four. And then when one left, we got another one of the four back. So we've only managed three out of the original four in the same room together. That's that's fantastic. And was the dynamic, because obviously you must have felt kind of like, my God, because most people don't get that great timing in life, do they? Most of us go, oh, God, I wish I'd left a little bit sooner. But you obviously left at such a perfect time. So was the dynamic when you started to get back together and sit in the same room, did that sort of ease and people, I don't know, let the water pass under the bridge? Uh, Absolutely. we, when we got back together again, um, it was uh, me, the singer Carl, and the drummer Steve and his, uh, his mate Felix. Um, it was different in that Felix had never played with Cud, and uh, so he, and he was a very good guitarist, and he played the songs in his own in his own way. Um, but the best moment is later when um, Steve and Felix left, and we got Mike back, the original uh, guitarist and the original and, and writer of, of like ninety five percent of the songs. Uh, and the best thing about getting back together again was um, rekindling that friendship, uh, especially between uh, Carl and Mike, because they'd bickered, you know, uh, uh, behind each other's backs for a while. But then when they finally met, and uh, it was just ridiculous. We were grown up. We this wasn't our full time job, so we weren't relying on each other in the same way. Um, we hadn't changed personalities, but uh, we loved playing the songs and and. I've seen Carl and Mike go off and do their own little carefree third gigs as a, as a duo and hang out with each other. And, and that's the, the most wonderful thing, that we're friends again. Um, and, you know, the, the music is fantastic as well, and it's great to play the songs. And it's true, you know, we had muscle memory from all those years and worked it out. And uh, so, hey, yeah, yeah. I'm not, and, you know, 
just enjoy playing live again. It's yeah. it's fun. It's like a holiday for us now. Yes, because um, quite a few people who sort of got back together, they just they only want to do it if that fits in with their kind of lifestyle or, or their schedules. Because most people don't want to give up their day job anymore, or sort of just do things at weekends. And most bands have also, I say most, quite a few, they've quite enjoyed sort of making a new EP, LP. But everything is done much more, kind of, um, I suppose, much more DIY. Really, you know, it's much more like it probably was in the very early days of sort of releasing themselves because I suppose no there isn't the industry anymore to to really sort of sell vast quantities I mean it's just well, sell enough to sort of cover the costs of it and then just feel the, happy with it yeah absolutely I mean the, the, you know for, even for you know bands starting out now not just um, bands with a, an old following you know it's impossible to to release a record and make money from it uh it's all from um touring uh, for us, our biggest earner is probably the the, the t-shirts, more than the, the recordings. Um, but the, the getting back together and again now, it it is, um, it, it you know, it, 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 there's no pressure. It's you know, you you play the gigs and you break even or make a little bit of pocket money. Um, there's no competition with other bands from our era. In fact, you know, bands that we thought were wankers, you know, meeting them now when they're all like dads and sorting out babysitters and. They're all so incredibly friendly, and you know, because there's, there's nobody jealous about who got. How did you get the enemy cover, or why did you get single of the week, and how come you're higher on the bill? It really doesn't matter anymore. We do. We're, we're like, you know, we're, we're older. We've got. We have day jobs, and we we couldn't give them up to to get cut back on the road full time because it's, there's not enough money. Um. So it is just worked out. We do tour around uh, weekends and school holidays. And, uh, you know, we, we do some recording as well. There is that that element as well. Like we kind of want to justify ourselves being around rather than being uh, purely a nostalgia band. Um, so we are working on new material, uh, which we're really proud of. And, um, you know, whether or not anyone buys it, it you know, it, it matters less. It, it, to us, we've like proved herself as a creative uh, force again we live uh, we'll put out an album and you know if you like it great uh, i don't expect us to suddenly um get in the charts again or you know uh, have a, a new career trajectory it's just we you know we, we prove ourselves um and then i don't know maybe we'll disappear again for another 20 years i don't know what the future holds yes well Yes, always, there's so many more things that we think about, like, you know, parents getting older and our own health. It's amazing when you get into the 50s how all these kind of new subjects come up in life, which um, put being in a band or being obsessed with music into perspective, really. I mean, the one, the other thing that I've noticed and spoke to people about has been the ownership of music as the records they produce. How did you, did you manage to navigate that quite well and have a certain ownership to the material that you recorded? Uh, we do own most of our material now. Um, we've done deals with um, labels like Cherry Red to re-release stuff, um, but that's for a limited period, you know, for a couple of years, and then we get ownership back. So we do own uh, a lot of our material, so we could re-release it if we wish. Um, we do sell uh, a lot of our tracks through um, a, a greed bag website. So, you know, we can directly um, get money back that way. Uh, but really, it's uh, it's it's not... It's not the money. Uh, we don't we don't get money from the music very much. It's mostly from the touring and t-shirts, uh, which is why nowadays uh, a lot of record companies try to, to claim a percentage of uh, merchandising rights from their bands, because that's a big earner. 
Yes, yes, even in the world of sport, isn't it? Football especially. But um, T-shirt sales are so big. But what would you kind of say to your 18-year-old self? You know, I mean, what advice have you picked up along the way that you think, God, that, that would be a really good thing to just mention? Uh, well, if I went back again, I would uh, take more bass lessons, to be honest. I would have taken the instrument a lot more seriously and probably worked harder. I think, uh, you know, the time, even when we're on a major label, we tended to rehearse about three days a week. Uh, we could have tried harder, I think. Um, but we were just enjoying ourselves. We got, you know, we, we could get the songs together. Mike was writing most of the songs. Um, I was running the um, fan club. And then the rest of the time, we were just playing, just enjoying ourselves and uh, going to clubs and stuff. Uh, and while it was a wonderful time, I think we could have been, uh, we could have worked a bit harder. But always what it was. <laughs> Yes, well, absolutely. Well, actually, the other thing that was quite major, which I hadn't, I know I said it several times, hadn't appreciated, but I, the, being on a lot of bands were sort of, especially the early years, were sort of claiming unemployment benefit or the enterprise allowance. That was a huge thing as well, which gave people a certain basic income, even though it's probably, I don't know, £40 a week in those days and, and probably housing benefit. But it was enough to keep the kind of finances together on that level because there wasn't any real money to be made. And if there was during those band years, it only lasted during those band years. Once the band finished, there was, you know, the royalty check was never that big, if anything. And even now, I think most people are lucky if they get £60 a year um, from royalties. Yeah, we, uh, me and the drummer certainly were doing Enterprise Allowance. I was uh, as a fledgling comic artist and uh, Steve um, was, a, was a drum repairman. And uh, which was was great because if anyone ever came round to uh, to check that he was actually doing the work, they could see him surrounded by broken symbols and uh, bits of drum kit that uh, he could claim were, um, you know, items that had been passed on to him to repair. Excellent. That is very good. Well, look. I've got quite a bit there now, but that's fantastic. And so thanks ever so much. And, I, and it's great that the Shine kind of festival is taking place now, because I think for most people, it's a bit like, oh, well, I think we should do it. And everyone has trepidation, because like you said, you probably think, oh, there's quite a few of those people I think are complete tossers for probably irrational reasons. And then you meet them and think, oh, actually, they're OK. And probably the people you dread more are the people who are nice and the people you would like to meet are probably turn out to be people who think, oh, my God, that's such a shame. They say never meet your heroes. <laughs> no, genuinely, um, these events, especially the, the one aboard ship, which we did uh, earlier this year, the ferry to Rotterdam, uh, you can't escape from the fans, you can't escape from the bands. Um, the only There's no um, real backstage, so you're just wandering around and meeting people and meeting other bands. And, and they're all genuinely uh, nice, and uh, this, this is, it's, it's a pleasure to do these events now. They're well organised, and... Um, you know, you get looked after and, and, and everyone's in it together, really. It's not a, the, the egos are left at the door, it seems, generally. Yes, I know. It's great. I mean, it's great that the, the indie bands are still sort of rocking, so to speak, you know. And probably, I, in a weird way, having sort of, um, yes, just been, you know, obsessed with music, I have a st certain appreciation for people like U2 now, because at the time, you know, you think, oh, bloody U2. I mean, I quite like their first albums and the occasional single, but to actually keep the gig going and create that industry around them, I realised it's quite a big number, you know, that I appreciate listening to so many people's stories about being in music themselves, realising that it's it's probably one of the worst in industries to get into. 
Um, I appreciate you two for uh, being able to keep the original four piece together. And similarly, REM for quite, and Radiohead as well, bands that can carry on for so long. Uh, and not necessarily, not necessarily making uh, great albums, but actually remaining friends and able to work with each other for that period uh, and, and, and make a living. Um, it's certainly a hard thing to do uh, nowadays uh, in music. Yes. Uh, yeah, I mean, no, I agree. I mean, I just thought, um, yes, you know, it's easy to bash, you know, certain people and certain bands, but then you think, Christ... You know, like you said, I always remember there was a, just lastly, that uh, there was a documentary about bands reforming on BBC Four. You know, it was one of those Friday night ones. And there was the member of uh, the police, Stuart Copeland, Copeland, saying that him and Sting just weren't getting on with this reunion. But, you know, there was a lot of money to be made. So they had to have band therapy to sort it out because everyone was having a good time, apart from two of the three members who really were unhappy as hell. And it did help a bit, but I don't think they'll ever do the reunion again. Yeah, I saw the interview. I think I think was it Metallica also had issues. Um, we we've never had it that bad. We've had our arguments, but it, you know it tends not to happen these days because you know the the band isn't our livelihood. It's less important now. And um, you know, Frank, if any member of the band says I'm not happy, I'm walking out. Then we say, Yeah, all right, fine. We'll um, we'll stop tomorrow. Yeah. And uh, but at the moment we uh, we see each other, you know, several times a year. We we get on fine and uh, and really enjoy the touring. Um, it helps the fact that you know, in terms of egos, uh, everyone's ego is knocked back by the the, the dry humour of the the rest of the band. Uh, so <laughs> no no one uh, no one is able to like get too big headed. Yes, and that is the interview with. William Porter, bassist with Cud. Thank you ever so much for listening. This has been David Easter. If you want to contact me, you can. You don't have to, obviously. But you can uh, find me on Facebook, Twitter, even Instagram. I'm that down with the uh, the kids. I don't know. Who knows? That just sounds a bit weird. Um, so you just go to at C86show. There, there you go. And all these interviews and other shows have been um, archived and are always going up on various social media sites. I'm not sure if there are social media. There's Spotify, iTunes, Podbean. We love that. And Sound, SoundCloud. I'm a bit hesitant about SoundCloud. I'm sure it is. No, it's not. It's MixCloud. There you go. It's age. I'm confused. Anyway, thank you for listening, if you still are. Bye. <laughs>